0: Protests are still raging across America following the lynching of George Floyd. But the rest of America seems to be having a COVID-is-over party, and that may be a bit premature. COVID-19 cases are skyrocketing in some of the states that opened earliest, like Florida, where COVID-19 cases topped 1,000 five days in a row. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul el In cities and towns across America, protesters have taken to the streets in a show of outrage against the lynching of George Floyd and so many black Americans at the hands of police in this country.
1: No No peace! peace!
0: But of course, we're just now coming out of lockdown for COVID-19, where we all socially distance to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And though many protesters are wearing masks and gloves to prevent transmissions, others aren't. This has prompted people to ask an obvious
2: question. COVID could be part of these demonstrations.
1: Dr. Fauci, in an interview uh, on Friday, said that these protests are a perfect setup for the spread of the virus.
2: We're certainly going to see transmission coming out of these gatherings. There's no question about that. I support very strongly the argument that is being made uh, by those who are
0: protesting uh, for more uh, equality um, and against discrimination. Uh, But the virus itself doesn't discriminate. But I want to break that question down a bit first, because it's more complicated than it seems. Implicitly, it pits the protests against public health. Like, social distancing is good for our health, but protesting is bad for it. But it misses the fact that protests are also about public health. Here's why. We know that black Americans die at higher rates of all kinds of diseases than white folks. Back in 2005, Dr. David Satcher, the former Surgeon General who served under Bill Clinton, asked a basic question about black lives. What if black people were to die at the same rate as white folks? How many black lives would we save every year? He found that we would save 83,000 black lives every single year. Why? Racism. Structural, institutional, and individual racism that kills black folks. Even COVID-19 took more black lives, in excess of 15,000 more. What are these protesters protesting? To remind us that black lives matter that our society should value those 83,000 black lives. The only way that you can pit the protests against public health is if you think that those black lives don't matter enough to be saved. And unfortunately, too much of society thinks just that. Otherwise, we would have uprooted all that racism a long time ago. Hence, we protest. Last week, I joined protests in Detroit and Flint. And while the majority of protesters were wearing masks, admittedly, some weren't. So if you're out there, here are a few things you can do to stay safe. Wear a mask over your mouth and nose. Bring hand sanitizer. Use it regularly. Stay in a close pack with a few others rather than wandering about in the group. If you can, rather than yelling, bring a sign or a noisemaker. Yelling releases air droplets. And don't go out if you feel ill or have been in contact with someone who's been sick. But also, so much of how police respond shapes transmission risk too, but we tend to conveniently ignore it. My next guest, Kerry Jr. the second, is an audio producer at the Detroit Free Press and a fellow at WDET in Detroit, and has been covering the protests in Detroit. He'll talk to us about the relationship between COVID-19 and the protests. Kerry, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're um, we're grateful for your voice right now. You've been listening to the protests unfold in real time. In fact, I was out there on Friday and uh, saw you right there with, uh, with your microphone kit, uh, capturing it in real time. Um, I, I want to just step back for a second. H- how much do you feel like COVID-19 has framed the
2: space for these protests, particularly in Detroit? Um, I, it's it's hard to say that to, to remove COVID-19 from these pro- pro- protests at all. Like It's definitely uh, a huge foundation which these protests are, are acting within. But to think about the large groups that are gathering, it is a secondary thought. Um, when it comes to the protesters and speaking with the protesters and what they're believing and fighting for they say that they're, they're here, for, you know, they're, they're here to, to fight for the justice that, wasn't, that was done uh, to George Floyd. And so understanding that being the primary objective that they're here for, they still wear their masks, they're still marching, um, but you understand that that is a thought and you have to take into consideration that we are in the middle of a pandemic, although the protesters are fighting for Black lives. You have to consider specifically the fact that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on Black communities as well. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum that this, this, is, this is right now. That's right. So you know the the reason everyone's come out, of course, is because of the horrible
0: murder of uh, George Floyd at the hands of uh, a white policeman and, and several other officers in Minneapolis. And you know, from what I'm hearing, COVID nineteen is is sort of a it's it's part of the the pressure that that really drove this type of of public response following that heinous murder, and of course the murder of Breonna Taylor, the the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, the you know the Amy Cooper incident where we watched an uh, innocent black man get his race used against him or weaponized against him simply for asking somebody to to follow the rules. You talked a little bit about how uh, protesters are are taking care to protect themselves, and you know, like you mentioned, we know that this pandemic has been has been disproportionately deadly and burdensome on the black community. How do you feel like that's shaped participation? Right, recognizing that this is a potential risk and folks are worried about potentially transmission and and bringing COVID-19 home with them after a day of protests. Do you feel like that's
2: changed the way that people are participating at all? Well, what I've spoken to some of the protesters specifically, um, it's not that they haven't thought about or considered COVID nineteen. They're saying they they understand the risk, but they understand that there's a there's a priority with what this protest is about. What they're doing, what I've seen, is masks. A large majority of protesters of having are having masks. But one thing that they're that they are doing, too, is I know um, one of the leaders, I think it's Nakia Renee Wallace, she would one of the chances shoulder to shoulder that they use. And so that already implies that they're already less than six feet a- apart. Um, so, yes, they are wearing masks. Um, but, yes, there's also an understanding that there's a concern about the spread because people are going to be so close. What I have noticed, um, because I've been out there, I think it was Thursday or Wednesday and Friday of the protests, day six and day eight. And as the protests have progressed through the days, I've seen the crowd seem to be a lot younger. Um, when we talk about uh, the information around COVID-19, not that, you know, young people can't get COVID-19, um, but they may be asymptomatic or just, you know, we, we believe the numbers initially we were thinking, oh, this is an older people disease um, or people were thinking that it was an older a disease that affected or killed older people. But I've seen that the crowds are younger. That could be because, you know, the perseverance and the stamina of trying to walk 10 plus miles every day but yeah th- there's precautions being taken i've even heard um now this is not something we reported this is something uh, i've heard from another protester that they were wiping using sanitation wipes to wipe the bullhorn that they were yelling into as they transitioned uh, uh, amongst the organizers so there there are certain precautions being made but there's also understandable concern um that covid19 could be spreading during these protests mm-hmm. yeah
0: well um I, I want to just, uh, I, I just want to switch tack uh, quickly. You know, I got to know you pretty well um, through the course of the the podcast. It was really a, a privilege to get to know you and, and to work with you. Um, you know, you, you're both a journalist uh, in this moment and, and, and also a black man in America. And I, I want to ask you, you know, what's it been like both to fulfill your professional responsibilities, but also give space to your uh, personal experience in a moment like this, where all of this is is
2: crashing together uh, in the most painful way. Ah, I knew you were gonna go here. I knew you were gonna go here. <laughs> I was like, "It's got to be. He's got to be."
0: Um, yeah, well, you're you're an audio journalist. You know, I wouldn't
2: be doing my job if I oh, if I didn't uh, if I didn't ask. Absolutely. I. Um, uh, it's been like I like I said before we we started talking. It's been an interesting position. Like this is something I did not anticipate having to deal with so soon in my career to say. Um, but it's. I definitely want to be true to the story. So there's, when I first got the, my supervisor had called me to support mm-hmm. our, our team out on the field to to cover the protests. And, I, you know, this is a field that I, you know, I stepped into to kind of, to do that for, I did that for a reason. And I definitely personally felt, you know, a, a fear. I was I was scared. I was definitely scared, but I didn't want to, you know, I couldn't say, no, This is this is a situation that I think needs to be reported and we need to make sure that we get the full story. Um, and so there was fear there. And I think the first thing that I, I did after I hung up with my supervisor and told her, yes, I wanted to do was like, Hey, you know, I should probably call my mom. And so I, uh, I took the time out right, af- right after that and I called her and that definitely was a conversation that was necessary because I had to recognize that not only did I feel the fear, but I knew that my mom would as well. Um, and so we talked for about 15, 20 minutes about it. And she wanted to know what practices we were doing and how we were going to stay safe? And, Um, And I definitely was told that I could say no at any time, but I did recognize that that was something I wanted to do. This is what I'm here for. I definitely want to make sure no matter what this story is told in its entirety and um, that we understand that this is, this is happening for a reason that there's a solution that people are trying to get to and that we figure out what the solution is between the two, two parties. Well,
0: I deeply appreciate your, uh, your work and your courage and your mama's courage. And the, the fact that, um, Journalism matters right now. Documenting this matters, and telling the story matters. And um, you know, m- my hope and my prayer and my work and my time, I-, I hope, is is really about helping to do that and to be with you and 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 to to make sure that that outcome that that we're after, even if we cannot define it entirely, and that you know it is sort of shared between us, is created. You know, we 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 started the show talking about eighty three thousand excess. Uh, black lives lost every year, and um, that's not just in policing, but that's in every aspect of of our lives. And so, um, documenting that and telling that story and doing that work—that's um, why folks are out. That's why you're out there telling that story.
2: Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to share it with us and um, and to come on the show. No problem. Thank you so much for asking me to be on here. I'm very happy to be on on the America Dissected podcast. Appreciate that.
0: Next, we'll chat with Dr. Julia Marcus, an epidemiologist who's focused on harm reduction. The idea that rather than an all-or-nothing approach to battling COVID-19, we have to focus on fitting COVID risk reduction into our lives. After the break. Professor Julia Marcus is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and she is a pioneer in the application of harm reduction approaches Uh, To taking on uh, COVID-19. And thank you so much for being here today with us. No worries. So I want to ask you, a lot of folks aren't familiar with the idea of harm reduction. Can you tell us what you mean uh, by harm reduction?
1: Sure. I think it might be easiest to start by talking about what I don't mean when I say harm reduction. So what I don't mean is abstinence-only messaging, which has really been what we heard for much of the last few months. Um, Stay home, except for essential activities like the grocery store, um, and and that kind of messaging, which you could also think of in the context of um, sex, like you know, telling teens don't have any sex. That kind of messaging only tells us the safest thing we can be doing, and it doesn't really give us a sense of um, lower risk activities that are not zero risk. But you know, a whole um, there's a whole spectrum of things between staying at home um, and having a crowded house party. Harm reduction is an alternative public health strategy that accepts that risk elimination is not possible, which I think we can all agree is the case at this point with COVID, and accepts that some people are going to need to take some risks and tries to give them strategies to reduce harm as much as possible mm. when that happens.
0: And you, your advocacy is really framed around the experience of uh, the AIDS epidemic early on. Um, uh, and you know now a, a lot of the work you're applying to COVID-19 Um, How are they similar and and how are they different?
1: Well, we can think about the early days of the AIDS epidemic as being somewhat similar to what's happening now. There's a new virus. We are just learning about how it's transmitted. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of fear. And what happened in the early days of AIDS is the best public health advice that gay men were getting was just don't have sex. And, uh, you know, that does... uh, That that's the safest thing to do in that context, but it ignores the reality that some people are going to have sex and and that asking people to just abstain from sex is ultimately going to be unrealistic for many people. And similarly, telling people to stay home until we have an effective vaccine for the coronavirus is also going to be unsustainable and unrealistic. Of course, there are important differences between these two viruses, many differences. One's a respiratory infection that can be transmitted in a much more explosive way than HIV is transmitted. And HIV has really remained fairly contained within certain communities. It disproportionately impacts gay men, especially gay black men in this country. And that that affected the way the government responded to it. Um, And now we have a, a, a virus that's certainly not affecting people equally. Um, there are still some vast disparities, but it does pose risk to the general population in a way that HIV didn't, especially in the early days. And so, you know, there are, there are differences here, but I think there are still lessons that we can learn from our response to the HIV epidemic and what worked and what didn't.
0: Yeah. I, one of the frustrating aspects of the way this has been messaged is that there is sort of this assumption of, our, of an all or nothing frame. And we miss a lot of the things that people can do in the middle. And of course, you know, borrowing from the analogy of uh, HIV transmission, we missed a whole generation of saying, we understand that that people are going to have sex and here are all the things that you can do to stay safe in the context of it. And what happens is if people think that there's only one choice and they can't make that choice, then that's it. And what happens culturally is then people just sort of slack back to to normal behavior. And we miss all of the opportunity to mitigate and reduce transmission and empower people to live their lives around uh, a, a disease that we're, we're trying to limit transmission of. And And so, you know, I don't want listeners to come off and say, well, you're just saying sort of like go about your daily life. What we're saying actually is recognizing that people are people and have human needs, here are the things that you can do to protect yourself even as you go about and be human. Um, That's right. How has, you know, your injection of, I think, this really thoughtful, thoughtful, important line of reasoning, how has it landed in a a place right now where we've watched as interventions against COVID-19 have become so politicized? You know, social distancing, no social distancing, mask, no mask how have you how has it landed in your in your sense and what are we getting wrong and what are we getting right
1: well i'll say i wrote this article uh, in early may in the atlantic uh, kind of introducing this idea and i had no anticipation about how viral that article was going to go and i think The reason it resonated so much for people was that we have had this politicization and we came down to these two polar options of staying at home indefinitely or going back to business as usual. And everyone knew that neither of those options was feasible or practical or a good public health strategy. But there wasn't any gray area there. And so I I think people were desperate to hear some alternative that says, look, there actually has to be a gray area here. Risk is a continuum. It's not binary. Our options are not just stay home and be safe versus leave your house and get COVID. There's a lot in between. Um, At the same time, this country has a history of resisting harm reduction, and we still, weeks after that article, don't have any examples, for the most part, of public health guidance from public health officials whose job it is to do risk communication that gives people a sense of that spectrum of risk. And and I'm still kind of pushing for that and waiting for it. And in the meantime, trying to put out infographics and things that will help people make those decisions. But it's ultimately not my job. It's the job of the CDC and state and local health departments. And so hopefully we will still see that guidance come out.
0: Mm. And what are some of the recommendations that you feel um, do meet that that harm reduction, uh, approach, um, in terms of how we're thinking about coming out of social distancing in, in, in the context of a COVID-19 pandemic that is certainly not over, um, right now.
1: I, I think we see examples from other countries, um, in the U S the, the main message is still wear a mask, stay six feet apart, wash your hands. That's, you know, that hasn't really been updated on the, C- the CDC w- website to acknowledge any sense of, um, you know, the need for sustainability here. Um, But we do see in other countries examples of, for example, um, in Canada, certain provinces in Canada and also New Zealand, where they have done a better job of containing the virus. They have now recommended a double bubble approach where you decide with another household that you're going to basically merge your germs and there's no need for physical distancing between you, but you will continue to distance from other people. And... That is a a perfect example of harm reduction. So it's acknowledging that people need social contact and it's giving them an opportunity to do it in a low risk way that is hopefully going to help people forego things like crowded dinner parties that we really want to avoid right now. And even if we're not in the same state, um, the stage as those um, countries or Canadian provinces Ep- epidemiologically at this point, to be able to recommend those strategies, we can still provide guidance with the acknowledgement that people are already making mm. these choices and need guidance on the safest way to go about it.
0: If and when uh, we end up having a a second wave, which, you know, a lot of epidemiologists, there's pretty much consensus on the fact that this is not gone, that this will likely... Um, come back to a second wave. I can imagine public health officials saying, we've got to go back to to real social distancing. And, and with the caveat recognizing that had we handled this different from the very beginning, there's a there's a potential world where we would not have had to lock down ever. We did not do that um, because of the failures of a lot of the same people who now want to open up really quickly. So that caveat is, is stated. But we very well may, be, may go back to a world where where you know real lockdown is again advisable public health um, policy. In, in that moment, people will likely come back to a harm reduction argument and say, "This is not the time or the place." Right? We need to go. We need to go full tilt. Um, real lockdown. I, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I'd love to hear your perspective on um, on how you would message um, a harm reduction strategy in the context of you know an, another vastly increasing wave um, of of COVID-19 and uh, how you would talk about um, harm reduction in that context?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think uh, the The messaging we had in early March was really absolutist, and I think it needed to be at that point. We needed to catalyze this really immediate change in human behavior, and we didn't have that much information about how the virus was being transmitted, what the highest risk settings were versus the lowest risk. We have a lot more information now that I think should guide us if and when we see a second wave so that we can say, all right... Most of the infections we're seeing continue to be in these high-risk settings. So let's focus our attention there and let's still, still let people, assuming we don't see big outbreaks in parks, let's let people still go to parks and let people still go to beaches. And, you know, think about the trade-offs so that we're not just re-adopting this all-or-nothing approach that both isn't realistic and is scientifically um, unnecessary.
2: Mm.
0: You know, it strikes me um, that so much of this conversation, particularly in the context of the murder of George, George Floyd and, and, and Breonna Taylor and, you know, that coming on a mountain of uh, brutality against black Americans, COVID-19 disproportionately impacted black folks in this country. And it did so in part because during the time when we were talking about lockdown for all of the low-income workers who had to go out into the economy that we, you know, called essential when you know just a couple months back we were, we couldn't achieve consensus on paying them fifteen dollars an hour, um, but we're now calling them essential. Um, weren't given much guidance about how to do this safely, and you know it speaks to the fact that even as we were being somewhat absolutist about our public health interventions, we were neglecting all of the folks for whom that advice was going to be impossible. And in some respects, this is about embracing every individual and empowering them to be their best decision maker. I want to move to another topic, um, which of course is is the topic on everybody's mind, which, which are the protests and um, I want to hear just generally right what are your thoughts on about the 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 protests in the concept, context of the pandemic? I've just taken a long time sharing my thoughts earlier on but but really want to hear your thoughts about how these two interact
1: Yeah, they're inextricably intertwined, as you just said um, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color, particularly black people, just as Every epidemic in this country, for the most part, disproportionately impacts black people. And it's an unfortunate reality that we are now in the position of fighting both systemic racial injustice and fighting a pandemic, which, again, are intertwined. I actually think we cannot choose between these two. We, We have to fight both. And so our best approach is to accept that these protests are happening and provide harm reduction guidance to protesters and do our best as public health, the public health community to communicate to police and to decision makers around um, what police are doing that are, are, that's potentially increasing the risk of transmission of these protests. And let's just try to minimize harms as much as possible wherever we can.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point, right? We we um you know, it's, the outcome of privilege is often to be accepted as normal. And um, you know, you think about the police being privileged in this scenario and we assume that their brutality is quote-unquote normal because because it has been normalized. Um and you mentioned the fact that, you know, a lot of what police are doing in this moment is driving um the the risk of transmission. Um can you talk about what what police departments uh need to be doing to reduce uh, the the harm that um, that that may come uh, to protesters and um, and society because of their policies.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen photos and video footage of these protests or been at them ourselves and seen that most protesters are wearing masks, but that's not necessarily true of police. And so that that's a, one place to start. But perhaps more important are the ways that police are facilitating crowding and um, and also driving people into crowds in indoor spaces, which we know is gonna be the highest risk for transmission, including buses and then detainment overnight in jails. There have been now thousands of protesters who've been arrested and put in jails where we know the virus can spread like wildfire. So these practices are, if we see increases in COVID because of the protests, I would guess that those are the, the places where we're gonna see them as the people who are detained indoors in crowded settings.
0: We deeply appreciate that and um, and thank you uh, for your leadership and helping us to think differently about um, how we can uh, take on COVID-19 and also live our lives. Um, and uh, grateful to you for your work and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. I am concerned about spiking rates of COVID-19 infections in a number of communities, but I've been concerned about that. Before George Floyd was murdered, kicking off protests in support of Black lives. Watching videos of folks walking around Vegas casinos without masks or frolicking at the beach, I'm reminded that if there is a second wave, it's not going to be because thousands of people stood up for justice, but because thousands more didn't practice basic protections as they went about their daily lives. And what's worse is that if and when we have a second wave, guess who they're going to blame? Not Vegas bro without the mask, but the protests. So I hope we understand how critical it is that we not revise history here. Epidemiologists expected this second wave well before there were ever protests. So let's not blame people who are standing up to save lives. That said, if you're going out there, make sure you practice harm reduction. Wear a mask over your mouth and nose. Bring hand sanitizer. Use it regularly. Don't wander about the group. Avoid yelling. And don't go out if you feel sick. Next week... We'll be chatting with our guest, Professor Tara Sinclair, an economist, to continue our discussion about the financial toll of this pandemic. We want to hear from you. Email us a voice memo at, americadissected at Crooked.com. How has COVID-19 changed your financial outlook? Have you lost a job? If you haven't, and your workplace is opening back up, will you go back to the office? And how has COVID changed your spending? Again, email us a voice memo at, americadissected at Crooked.com. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. And of course, we need to win this next election. So join me on Team Michigan at Vote Save America. You can check us out at votesaveamerica.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rap. The theme song is by Taki Asuzawa and Alex Huguera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.